What is up, folks? It's great to be back. Maybe it's just me feeling like it's been a hot minute since I've done this style of uh, podcast, the solo podcast, but man, have I missed it. What did we miss? I missed Noma reopening, Ulterior Epicure going completely off on Franzen in his blog. Pete Wells gave Dadong zero stars, more allegations from this uh, Grace closing story, and James Beard's finalist just got announced. So let's talk about it, shall we? Welcome back to the show, folks. My name is Justin Kana. This is episode 56 of The Emulsion. If you're new here, this is a show where I talk all about the news stories and industry happenings that matter to me as I navigate my career as a professional chef. And then I give a little bit of insight that I've gained over the last nine years in this industry. I gotta give a shout out to our sponsor first. That is you folks, at least the ones of you that are generous enough to support me on Patreon. So it's as little as $1 per month and it doesn't seem like a lot, but it really does help me get closer and closer to doing this internet thing full time. So if you wanna sponsor the show, you can do that for just a dollar on patreon.com slash justincana. That is linked down below in the description, or you can go ahead and check out my site, justincana.com slash Patreon. Uh, I would sincerely appreciate it. Uh, shout this week goes out to Matt Sandoval. He uh, is the newest supporter to the site. So if you want to get a plug here on the show, I'm giving away a, um, I'm giving every new supporter a little shout out here as a big fat thank you. Second personal plug, if you're interested in signing up for my bi-weekly newsletter, I have, I include always discounted gear that I find or get offered articles that I'm enjoying or that I'm planning on covering here on the show or have covered in the past that you can just read, just delivered right to your inbox. Uh, new videos, inspiration that I found through like Instagram or something like that, uh, new dish ideas, it's all included as a way for me to bring value to your inbox. I'm not wanting to be spammy at all, I just wanna fill that newsletter with great stuff and every time you see a little notification from me, you get excited. So if you wanna sign up for that, go ahead and check out justincona.com slash newsletter and uh, you can take it from there. Today's beverage, um, I'm on the last bits of a little bit of coffee here. That's all I got. It's a late afternoon episode of the Emulsion, so I'm trying not to get too caffeinated before we get going here. I should have had enough by now. First up, I want to touch on this piece that Bon Appetit did called, quote, a day in the life of a line cook at one of New York City's fanciest restaurants, end quote. They spend time with Nana Araba Wilmot. She works at Le Cuckoo in New York City. But they took the perspective of highlighting her, not Daniel Rose, who is the 40-year-old Chicago native who is actually the executive chef of the restaurant. The article's linked up if you want to go ahead and read it. It also has a nifty little video to accompany it. They did a really great job of talking about the reality of the industry. A lot of what I've been through, a lot of what makes up your life, uh, saying things like, quote, she's just one of 1.6 million line cooks in the, new, in the United States trying to build a life out of 11-hour shifts. Without cooks like her, those restaurants you obsess over, those dishes that you snap photos of, would not exist, end quote. Also, being in New York City, they ask her a bunch of other uh, financial facts about her life. Her, uh, I'm quoting the article now, her monthly rent is $870. She lives in a three-bedroom apartment. Her 30-day MetroCard is $121. There's also a gym membership that she might cancel. She makes $15 an hour. That is on the high end for a line cook. Nationally, the median hourly wage for line cooks is under $12. 19% of them live in poverty. Taxes and health insurance come out of her paycheck weekly. She's not sure how the math works out. She says, quote, I just pull it together by the end of the month somehow, end quote. 
And for real though, right? Like I've been there, you're probably there as well. Uh, it's like, I gotta pay taxes, sounds great. Just take them out of my paycheck. Uh, just so much of the line cook life isn't worrying about how much you're gonna save every month. It's kind of like, can I pay for everything by the time everything's said and done? Yes, okay, good, sounds great. Uh, let, let, let's, let's move on, I'll see you tomorrow kind of thing. So there's also a breakdown uh, that they do of females in the kitchen. They talk about sexual harassment, uh, stuff that's a huge topic in the industry right now, financial pressure, and then they go through a little breakdown of a typical service in the restaurant. It's definitely a recommended read if you're wanting to get any insight into what it's like to be a New York City line cook or kind of like at a higher end a la carte restaurant. I'm happy they didn't glorify this or make it too dramatic or like Hollywoodized. It's actually pretty accurate what they're saying, at least, um, it's not stuff that I haven't ever seen in a restaurant before. I don't know how much they actually ended up twisting it. Um, but this line really stuck out at me that they said, quote, at 10.30 p.m., the night slows, the wee chefs get quieter and less frequent, the orders come in further apart, line cooks pause at their stations to eat slices of pilfered bread, Wilmo cracks jokes with the cook on meat entremet, her shoulders relax, it wasn't her best night, she decides, but it wasn't her worst, end quote. And I totally feel that. I totally get that, where it's like, you start service super strong, and then as it starts to kind of slow down, it's like, oh man, I haven't drank water in like four hours, or like, I haven't eaten anything all day. I, I've only had one meal. So you like start to eat scraps and stuff. I totally, totally understand it. Um, there's another quick line from her, quote, if you asked me a couple years ago, I would have been like, yeah, I wanna open my own restaurant, she says, but the more you get into the industry, you see how competitive and stressful it is, and you're like, do I really want that, end quote. And personally, I can totally relate to that. It's a conversation that I've personally had with myself multiple times in my career. It's of course still in the back of my head, but it does become worth it if one of your, um, if one of the biggest, like does it become worth it if one of the biggest food media companies comes to your business and does a profile on one of your employees like this? Like Bon Appetit stomped into this restaurant and wanted to highlight one of their employees and the owner of that restaurant has to deal with the fact that um, so many of the YouTube comments in this video that accompanies this article says like, this is bullshit, she should get paid more, I don't understand why they're running their business like that, like paying their staff so little. But in reality, like half of you are probably like $15 an hour, that sounds dope, right? So much of this show is to give you topics to chew on. I think it's stuff that should make you think for yourself to make you aware of your own decisions. I would never dissuade you from having your own restaurant. I just want you to completely be aware of the harsh realities that come with a traditional standalone restaurant. It took me a really, really long time to uh, finally wrap my head around that kind of stuff. Um, but once I did, it's where this kind of um, eagerness to share my ideas came from. Um, I was just a big fan of the way that they presented this. They highlighted someone who was a minority. She's not only a female and an African Caribbean American, she's also 31, which is like an age that she admits is almost a decade older than her peers. Um, if you did get a chance to read this story, do you have any thoughts on it? Or do you have any thoughts just from listening to me kind of rant on it? Um, I would love for you to let me know in the comments. Um, I'd be, I'm always interested to hear from you folks. Next up, I've been super excited to see my friend Bonjwing Lee of Ulterior Epicure blogging a little bit more. Uh, he dropped his favorite meals of 2017 uh, a couple days back, as well as a couple other thoughts on social media. But he does these more focused blog posts called Ruminations, and that's where he covers a very specific topic. And number rumination number 36 was particularly interesting, and I'm also going to get into rumination 35 that he published 
um, shortly before that. Um, but let's get into it. It's called Quantum Soulless is the title of uh, rumination number 36. And I want to read you a few lines of it so you can get the gist of it. Quote, in restaurant vernacular, the word soulless is commonly described, to, uh, commonly used to describe a restaurant or more specifically the food at the restaurant. Even though most understand what soulless means, in this usage, the word is abstract. Attempts to explain or define this word in this context have been unsatisfying. Approximations like uninteresting and emotionless are equally abstract and inadequate. He goes on to say, nearly all of the dishes had been plated in such a way to ensure that I'd get a taste of everything in each bite. There was a uniformity to the way that the food was arranged with an even distribution of ingredients, sauce and garnishes throughout. Herbs were tweezers to cover every inch of the plate at even intervals. Vegetables were shingled with perfect symmetry. No matter how you cut or spooned it, you would get equal proportions of everything. He continues to say, quote, normally flavors and textures are experienced in mosaic. No two slices of pizza are likely to have all of the toppings in the same proportion. Even within a slice, the distribution is patchy. One twirl of pasta may have more sauce, more tang. The next may have more meat, more cheese. Salads present endless patterns, end quote. If you're into this kind of philosophical look at food, which Bonjwing is very good at elaborating over, I would highly encourage you to read it. Again, the name of the piece is called Quantum Solus. Uh, he has also uh, published Rumination number 35, which he published a day after the Scandinavian edition of the Michelin Guide went live. And he talks a lot about plagiarism and his qualms with the Michelin Guide and more. Uh, I'm going to go really deep into this one, so just be prepared for this to turn into kind of a rant. Here's a quick quote that I want to talk about. Quote, I've eaten around the block enough to know that the restaurant industry, ever shrinking and globalized by social media, is full of recycled ideas and inspirations. But there's a difference between being inspired and plagiarizing. I use the word plagiarize here deliberately. Making a tribute to an icon is one thing. Marco Pierre White attributed his famous stuffed glove of trotter to his uh, mentor, Pierre Kaufman, labeling him as on his menu along with the dish, Pig's Trotter, Pierre Kaufman. Plagiarism is taking another's idea and passing it off as one's own. Without a further explanation, that is what appears to be happening at Franzen. And I feel particularly qualified to talk about this story, not just because I know Bonjwing, I've spent time with Bonjwing. He was the photographer at the series of dinners that we did called Friends of Lise Verket at the restaurant that I worked at in Norway. I also spent a week staging at Fransen, so I know all of the guys there and I know like I know exactly what they're going for. I also included um, my email that I sent to them or at least a draft of what I would have sent to them in my stagiaire template uh, video. So this isn't the first time that I'm talking about their stuff. And if you missed the news, Fransen just got elevated from two Michelin stars to three Michelin stars after changing uh, their location. They got a brand new space, revamped the entire thing. They also revamped the menu. And after getting three Michelin stars, this is Bonjwing taking a look at why they went from two to three stars, even though a lot of the dishes on Fransen's menu seems to be very clear plagiarism to other chefs' food. So again, both of these ruminations are linked up. It's really fascinating to read his stuff. He's um, very articulate, but I have conflicting perspectives on these stories only because I have difficulties empathizing with uh, Bonjwing's perspective. I personally know what it's like to work at the restaurants that he talks about. I know what happens in a menu meeting when you're planning a new dish, where your mind goes when you kind of scroll through Instagram or watch a documentary on a restaurant or read a cookbook from a certain chef. It affects your food and that creative process is affected by your environment and what you consume. 
Um, I've personally spoken about it before. There is absolutely huge value in remixing that kind of steal like an artist mentality. It happens in every industry, not just in food. I just personally fear that Bonjwing hasn't ever written a tasting menu himself before. He's never constructed what has to be an expression of a brand or a location or an individual through food and through stories. His background is in practicing law and more recently in photographing for brands and restaurants and publishing his thoughts on his blog uh, through other publications as well. And that leads to incredibly articulate writings. I, again, I've spent a lot of time with Bonjwing and I've eaten with him. He's very well traveled. He's very well opinionated and he digests all of these experiences from a very unique perspective. I just fear that he's romantic about certain elements of cooking. And this only comes from my experience in cooking for him. I know what it's like to cook for Bonjwing. I did it at Grace. I did it at Least Verket. Um, writing a menu that would appeal specifically to him and those that think like him. He says it himself, quote, I ask of those chefs, for whom are you cooking? The 99% who are unlikely to know of what you're doing or the 1% who cares enough to know. In my own craft, I have never aimed to be well-liked or popular, clearly in parentheses, rarely as a craftsman, rather as a craftsman, my aim has always been to earn the respect of those of whom I respect. If I were a chef, I would be cooking for the 1% who cares enough to know, end quote. Now, I agree that straight plagiarism is wrong, right? Taking someone else, taking what someone else created and using it for your own personal gain without giving any credit is not cool, right? Give credit where credit is due. How many times though do things have to be iterated or executed before just anyone can take them, right? Like he talks about that as well from the article, but who can claim hollandaise sauce, right? Like we all know Thomas Keller's salmon cornets, but that is that snack is a reimagined salmon bagel. Like, who, where should credit go for that? Uh, like, I did a dinner the other night where I took a pre-dessert from my friend Jose in Sweden and literally called it Jose's pre-dessert on the menu. But then the week after, I was cooking for another event and I did the same dish, but I garnished it with my own twist because it was actually a surprisingly Indian dish. Do I still have to give credit to Jose? Right, like this gives another point that he covers, quote, perhaps that Perhaps that kitchen believes its own variations on these iconic dishes sufficiently differentiate them from the originals. If so, they have a lot of explaining to do to overcome the great weight of evidence against them. Whether the case may be, the folks at Fransen can sleep with themselves at night, then I'm not going to prosecute them further. Simply put, the 1% won't take the restaurant seriously." End quote. What I'm personally concerned about, and the reason why I wanted to cover this story so badly is in this, in this light is I don't want to have a young cook read this and obsess over catering to this demographic, this 1%, because I fear that it will create this crippling anxiety to impress the diner that's part of this mystical 1%. I fear that doing so might get the respect of those people, but at what cost, right? Creative paralysis, like, is that gonna, um, encourage executing these unforeseen flavors and techniques just for the sake of being like quote unquote different. Um, and then that chef risks alienating or even losing the interest of the 99% that is the majority audience, which again, in a very objective business sense is the worst way to create. It's, it's a horrible way to look at running your business, just catering towards this 1% audience. Discounting the audience or rather expecting, um, the 1% of your audience to advocate and convince the 99% of your worth just seems irresponsible, right? I've talked about it in previous podcasts with uh, Dosby, the 
three pillars of being a creative include the art, the artist, and the audience. And if you completely disregard the audience, or at least the majority of the audience, it seems a little counterintuitive, right? Like I'm not saying cater to the basic foodie, but also don't disregard the low hanging fruit, right? Like if there's, if, if there's progress to be made without an immense amount of stress, why would you not take that? Um, we've just seen it time and time again, the chef that wants to express themselves, create something that's never been done before. And then when Bondring says, quote, if I were a chef, I would be cooking for that 1% who cares enough to know, end quote, I'd be curious to see where he's at after 10 months of being open at this restaurant where he cooks like that. Um, I'm also very aware that I don't have a successful restaurant on my own. Um, and there are so many other factors that go into a restaurant, like offering, uh, uh, similar experience at a more convenient geographical location. For example, I look at Blaine Wetzel on Lumi Island here in Washington. He genuinely and very transparently says that a lot of his food is inspired by Noma and his time there. And the landscape here is incredibly similar to, to, to what he has in, in Copenhagen, but so much of his food looks and reads like it's off of a Noma menu. Um, he rode a wave that new Nordic food created and is able to stay open by marketing that destination style dining experience but without traveling to Europe. And is that entire concept okay? Um, would the blessing of the 1% be enough to save it if it was not doing well business-wise? Again, not question I'm 100% confident I could answer. I love Bonjwing. I love that he goes against the grain. He shares his controversial perspective. Um, I look to his recommendations a lot when I'm personally traveling. It's a, He's a pleasure to hang out with, but I feel educated enough to chime in here as well, to join the conversation as part of that 1%. I'm also crazy critical of my restaurant experiences. I'm not afraid to say things are good or bad. Uh, if you see any of my This Place Called videos, you know that. But ultimately, I'm gonna quote Bonjwing saying, quote, integrity is everything to me, end quote. And that comes from another article that he did with the art of plating. And he carries that theme throughout his ruminations. So if anything, I hope that's your takeaway from his writings to make sure that your work can stand alone. If people pull back the curtains, there aren't tubes and strings attached to the coattails of others. Uh, that you're being honest and there are also no skeletons behind that curtain that I, the proverbial curtain that I talked about before. And if there are, at least make sure that it's very well labeled and that it, it, it comes from a good place, right? Like that your intention is good. And this is coming from the perspective of someone who's realized that it is possible to do that and appeal to more than just the 1%, right? Like if your ambition is to just appeal to the 1% and have their respect, that's totally fine. I don't want to dissuade you from that. I just think of like people like Stephen Harris at The Sportsman, one of Bondwing's favorites. Um, I cooked for with him at a chef's dinner. He, he has incredible food and execution, but prior to Bondwing, I had never heard of him. So if you want mainstream attention, there's more to it than just appealing to the 1%. So um, I encourage you to give the articles a read for yourself. They're linked up for your convenience. Next up, I have to talk about the savage New York Times uh, review from Pete Wells giving zero stars to Da Dong, a Beijing-based restaurant that opened a location in New York City. So their specialty being the pecking duck, Wells says, quote, reminded me a bit of the lean, whitish, non-committal supermarket pork chops I grew up on, slowly, gradually, with mental resistance, but simply, but still inexorably, it dawned on me that I had paid $98 for a duck with almost no flavor. It was dry, too, end quote. And he then takes it further to talk about other dishes, saying, quote, Kung Pao shrimp with beet, coins, and raw mushrooms tasted like ketchup. Sweet and sour pork ribs with preserved plums were as sweet as if they'd been stewed in Dr. Pepper. And a dusting of powdered sugar at the table didn't help. 
Little teebies of Iberico ham come wrapped around cold, dry wads of sticky rice. Champagne glazed tomatoes were sweet enough to serve for dessert. And the uh, crispy mushroom salad they were stuffed with wasn't crisp and they didn't particularly taste like mushrooms, end quote. So he does give a nod to the desserts and the wine list. He says he didn't hate those, I guess, but that he's not the only one to call them out. Uh, Andrew Zimmern also didn't have the nicest things to say about Da Dong's uh, New York City location. If you are in New York City, have you been here? Uh, there's not a ton of takeaways from me from this story. Um, I just see a goose egg review and I need to know why. It goes back to the previous story with Bonjoring where you, you, you can and should listen to the opinions of the 1%, but it should be with like a grain of salt. Little coffee sip. Um, next up in restaurant news, I have to talk about uh, Somni, which is Jose Andres's insanely beautiful new tasting counter. It, from the pictures I've seen, it is a strange combination aesthetically of El Bulli meets uh, Grace meets Brooklyn Fair. Uh, it's in LA. Uh, here's the quickie rundown, a little bullet point stats. Uh, 10 seats. It is $235 a person. Uh, the menu is 25 courses. Aitor Zabala will oversee the menu. Uh, rumor has it the stove itself costs uh, millions of dollars, which is a little bit crazy. Um, they take reservations through talk. They will have two seatings, 6 p.m. and 8.30 p.m. There are three possibilities for wine pairings, ranging from $175 to $500 a person. And they've also got a, a cheeky little juice pairing for $75 per person. And personally, LA is bringing it hard lately. Between Vespertine and Dialogue and Somni, I wouldn't personally be surprised if we saw a LA Michelin guide or the move from Michelin to create like a California guide or even like a West Coast guide to encompass the Bay Area as well as everything going on in California like it does in um, Scandinavia. Maybe they'll do like an East Coast guide as well where it'll go all along the East Coast uh, so they can uh, highlight people in the South um, maybe even they'll split it up into regions similar to how like the James Beard Award does it where they do like West and, uh, you know, like Midwest and, and Southwest. I'm just a firm uh, believer that given the choice um, between a blank check, uh, check of going out to LA or going to DC, I would 100% pick LA right now uh, to go crazy on the fine dining experiences. And yet DC is the one with the Michelin Guide. Um, it's, re it's really typical that you'll see a lot of uh, chefs stray away from the fine dining related uh, food in cities where there is no Michelin guide, but it's really fascinating to see LA kind of just saying, oh, there's a market here that will pay for fine dining food. And then they just kind of like run with it. Um, I did take a peek at the Somni food. It's very kind of 11 Madison Park meets Muguritz in that way. Um, if you have taken a look at the food, what do you think? Uh, let me know in the comments. Has anyone been there? I would also love to know that. Um, I took a look at some of the food and the comments. Um, it's kind of what you expect. Some people pissed off that it's super expensive and some people saying it's a really, really great experience. Um, I just wouldn't be surprised if we see Michelin uh, somehow figuring out a way to highlight um, uh, LA in some capacity. Next up, I covered it when it was announced. I've been following along the entire time. Noma 2.0 is open and there has been a ton of coverage on it for good reason. It is the world's most influential restaurant, right? 
an interesting happens. An interesting thing happens though when I take a few weeks away from covering the news stories because everyone else gets a chance to share their perspective, and it's actually cool because now I can cover these other stories that come out of the woodwork. Uh, if you want to check out coverage on Noma 2.0, Jonathan Gold did a great review. Um, Anders Husa also made a video all about their tasting menu when he went to go experience it. Um, all the presentations, all of them kind of like captured in real time. The story that I want to dive deeper into though, there's this guy named George Reynolds and he published an opinion article on Eater titled, quote, what made Noma great is now its biggest flaw, end quote. So let's get into that. Um, and wow, I just gotta say wow, because after reading this article, I'm ex extremely, extremely confused. So let's start with Noma's response saying it's seriously, and then they have three emojis. Like one is like the sad face, one is the flat face with like the eyebrow raised up, and then the other one is like another sad face. He says, uh, whoever was commenting from Noma says, we're people from 22 nationalities. Our research involves being inspired by all food cultures. Anyone with minimal insight to what we've been doing for the past four years knows this, but yes, our muscles are from Limfjorden, end quote. That's from Noma on Twitter. So it's hard to say, what this author wants from the guys at Noma, right? Like this is a very, it seems very clickbaity. It seems as though he's attempting to kind of like poke the artist and see what happens. Um, I'm gonna read you a few lines. Quote, because for all the wide-eyed celebrations of its groundbreaking approach to food, Noma's philosophy is not actually very progressive at all. To start with, there's the fact that Noma's philosophy has its roots in culinary traditions that precede it by decades as it was well generally unacknowledged until relatively recently, Jap Japanese kaiseki has been showcasing its fealty to micro-seasonal, micro deeply locavore cooking for almost half a century. Further west, Alice Waters' Chez Panisse has offered daily changing menus of intensely local bounty almost as long as Redzepi has been alive. He continues to say, but this is only one approach to creativity and it has been striking to watch it become the dominant one adopted by cooks the world over at Lyles in London, at Contra in New York, at Bray near Melbourne in Australia. What started off as a welcome reprieve from the most worst ex excesses of Ferran Adria's make it new modernism has now become just as prevalent in forward looking kitchens and just as stifling to further development. All of this work is immensely time consuming, massively labor intensive, which produces tiny yields. This creates a real financial cost for somewhere like Noma, which came dangerously close to bankruptcy in its previous home. It represents an opportunity cost for diners and chefs at Noma doctrine has taken all over the globe. In a world not short on artisanal diaries, dairies, and charcutiers, think of how much time and effort chefs have wasted in turning their own butter or curing their own charcuterie, just because this is what the tough new Nordic spirit of self-sufficiency demands. Think too of what a stage might learn if they did not have to construct insanely intricate presentations. Think finally of what might be achieved by cooks looking not inward and down, but up and out into the horizon." End quote. He proceeds to then reference all of the Noma pop-ups and other restaurants uh, like Major Domo and Vespertine and The Gray, all places that he says, quote, feel like they're an open dialogue with a whole host of culinary voices. The list has a whole range, widely implicit foregrounding how boring culinary hom homogeneity can be, and how much we restrict ourselves if we call fine, if we call dining fine only if it comes with a four-figure check. At the moment, Noma is excluding itself from all of these conversations. Its reinvention may yet prolong the original's legacy or catapult it into the new realms of influence and importance. 
Given how much Rene Redzepi and his team have contributed to our enjoyment in the past decade, it would be mean-spirited to hope otherwise. Whatever happens, the quality of the team involved means that Noma 2.0 will doubtless uh, end 2018 of one of the very best, one of the most celebrated restaurants on the planet. And that ending is what confuses me. There's a lot about this article that confuses me. Um, that's where I'm confused. He's like, Noma is so great to sticking to its identity and being this focused powerhouse of hyper-seasonality hyper and execution. But then at the same time, like, he's like, shame on them for not including other cultures and cuisines and ingredients, right? Like, screw you, dude. Like, this is nothing but direct proof that Noma is doing it right. Um, this quote is so true. The, the, the easiest way to fail is to try and please everyone, right? Like, who is this George guy to try to tell Noma what to cook and serve and how to create, right? Like, why not subjectively offer your opinion on what they're executing on instead of sharing what they could be serving and what they should be thinking about, right? Like, I could write an article saying, oh, seafood tasting menu? They should take inspiration from their time in Japan and do a nigiri dish, that'd be cool. But the problem is it's not my restaurant, it's Renee's restaurant. And if he doesn't want to serve that, he shouldn't serve that, right? Like the second that he did that, he would get the same criticism from Bondwing later, like earlier in the article saying that he no longer has quote unquote integrity, right? Like Renee and the team at Noma became the best in a category, which is something that not a lot of chefs can ever say that they'll do. And to suggest that they should change is akin to saying that Apple should start experimenting with biotech or like Coca-Cola should start making their own barbecue sauce. Like they could, they could do that, but there's enough people doing shitty versions of that in the world. And if you've got something that you're sustainably good at being the best at, that's the asset, right? Like don't for a second waver and get greedy, right? Like he travels the world and brings cutting edge technique and an open mind to other cultures. And for everyone that's saying it's getting too expensive, you're damn right it's getting too expensive. Being the best in the world comes at a price. And if people are willing to pay that, more power to Renee, right? Like, it's easy to criticize the best and say that they're not doing it the way that you would do it, but that's precisely how they got to where they are, right? Like, by saying no to everything that wasn't inherently them, laser focus is so, so necessary, and Noma should be nothing but proud of that. I'm sorry, I already forgot the name of the author. Is that too savage? I'm pulling this from a piece from Vanity Fair talking about Noma 2.0. Quote, the kitchen combines the same modern modernity and the sense of craft. With its polished wood stations, big open spaces, and walkways covered with glass ceilings, it bore traces of the one Noma had built in the jungle of Tulum during its most recent pop-up. Now Renee says, quote, we learned that in Mexico, how amazing it is to have an outdoor kitchen. We just had to figure out a way to do it in a place with shittier weather, end quote. Also, in no way was I able to find any evidence on George's social media that he's actually eaten at Noma in either location at any pop-up in any capacity. Uh, he even says it in a tweet that, quote, very much a dream come true to have something come up on eater.com. Phenomenally grateful to Hillary Dixler for making it possible, end quote. And this is a tweet from him. So I can't help but think that this was a juicy and exciting escape from him, from his normal writings for Eater London. And he wrote this in part for clicks and views, right? Like I sent him a message on Instagram to ask if he'd ever eaten at Noma uh, in any kind of capacity. He hasn't responded to me so far, so I will tweet out uh, if that changes, but it definitely seems as though he's using anger and controversy to kind of increase page views, which is so, man, I hate that. I hate that. I will never ever criticize a restaurant unless I've experienced it. I've made that decision a long time ago when I worked for chefs that would talk a lot of shit after seeing stuff on Instagram and Twitter, 
And it's easy to do that. It's easy to talk shit. It's really hard to experience that place with an open mind and then articulate your criticisms after the fact. It's one of the reasons why I'm so comfortable uh, bashing this guy and I'm so um, respectful of the conversation that Bon Zhuang has to bring to the table. If that kind of like helps you guys uh, develop where my lens is coming from. But for real, it's one of the reasons that I do this show. I'm not saying I'm the be all end all of chef news, but I do want you to get your information and inspiration from multiple perspectives to weigh in your own thoughts from your own experiences on top of that and then make your decision, right? Like don't exclusively listen to me, but I would hate if you were only to listen to people that write about restaurants that they've never eaten at. Feel me? So. Next up, uh, and same as last year, I'm linking up the James Beard Award finalists. It's always great to see them highlight restaurants from so many cities across the US. Um, I'm gonna keep the story short. Congratulations on all the nominees. I will be 100% sure to share my highlights when the winners are announced on May 7th. That is happening in Chicago again this year. The media awards will be prior to that uh, for all the podcasts and documentaries and books uh, that will happen on April 27th. Uh, a big point that actually did happen this year includes considerations with work environment and bad behavior. The judges that vote on these uh, awards received a directive that read, quote, if you have concerns about a chef, restaurateur, or beverage professional, or about the culture around a restaurant or restaurant group, leave the person or business out of your nominations, end quote. So speaking of that story, and I'm gonna kind of piggyback off of it, a quickie but long-winded article is linked up where they found a long history of uh, sexual harassment happenings at Danny Meyer's Union Square Hospitality Group, where people would get multiple quote unquote strikes of misconduct. Um, and they're attempting to kind of save face by implementing a new zero tolerance policy. Um, that article is linked up if you wanna dive deeper into that, but I'm sure all of you know my kind of zero tolerance policy on all of that. Next up in news that I'm sure we all saw coming, David Chang is going to uh, launch uh, Major Domo Media, quote, the company shares a name with the newest Momofuku restaurant. Chang is teaming up with one of his ugly, delicious collaborators, Christopher Chen, as well as former Wired editor-in-chief Scott Dadich, who is also the founder and co-CEO of the design and strategy firm Godfrey Dadich Partners. Former Los Angeles Magazine editor-in-chief Mary Melton and Lucky Peach editorial all-stars Chris Ying and Rachel Kong are also joining in on this media company. So they will be exploring travel, food, music, sport, sports, and exploration. David Chang saying, quote, I don't want to tell people what to do or show them the cool new thing. There's plenty of places that do that. I want to teach them how to find and understand new and different things themselves and let them bring their friends along for the ride. I want to create experiences where it's okay to have honest conversations, where people can consider culture and race and have strong opinions while exploring their passions, end quote. So it's no doubt an exciting story uh, for some, for the fans of Ugly Delicious. If you haven't uh, seen that before, you definitely should. Whether or not you enjoy it or not, I think it's a really refreshing take. Uh, some people don't think it's refreshing at all. Some people think it's kind of like beat to death. Um, but I watched it, I certainly enjoyed it. Um, and those were concerned. Those that were concerned with Lucky Pete shutting down, uh, it's definitely possibly a good thing for the fans of that publication. There's no doubt that this direction is something that I'm a fan of. Media should supplement restaurants, just like how musicians have music videos. It sounds like he's got an amazing team and the hype is there, the global reach is there. Uh, this is certainly going to be a powerhouse and I have no doubt I'll be sharing some of uh, their stories here on my little podcast going forward. 
Um, there was one story that I said I was going to cover, but I actually forgot to uh, talk about it. I want to uh, see if I can still pull it up here. Um, let's see if I can actually pull it up. It's the story about uh, Grace. Um, Grace. Let's see. Grace. Oh, yeah, there we go. So there has been more information that has come up um, about the Grace controversy. And again, I was on the opening team in that restaurant. I'm in the documentary about that restaurant. The title uh, under the lawsuits category says, Grace owner alleges Curtis Duffy and Michael Muser took $10,000 in truffles and more. So they're in court. They're battling over all of this stuff. Um, Let's see if I can read any interesting quotes. Um, you guys know all the details. In addition to the allegations surrounding the missing and unaccounted truffles, produce, and wine and wagyu, Olzowski's latest suit again says that he plans to open a restaurant in the gray space in the very near future. He also plans to open a casual restaurant onward near Loyola soon. Um, it's just so, such a, man, I just hope I never have to deal with anything like that, whether it's for my own employees or, um, from, you know, like my boss does that. Just, uh, it's just sad to see it. It's just, uh, I had so much anticipation and inspiration going into that experience and to see all of it turn into this uh, flaming mess is a little bit frustrating to see. But anyway, 